reading for this evening is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Word of God. Your eyeballs will melt. If you look directly at someone who's welding, your eyeballs will melt. At least, that's what our parents told us. Or that's the way we paraphrased what we were told. It was to protect us, I think. To scare us. Not just to scare us into good optic hygiene. It was to scare us away from Mr. Varner's garage. <laughs> Cal Varner lived next door to my best friend, Danny Sorheim. Mr. Varner had a big gas welder in his garage. He drank a lot of beer. He did not have an interest in personal hygiene. He didn't go to work, but late at night, he would weld things for people, and drink beer, and smoke cigarettes. He drank beer and smoked cigarettes while he operated a gas weld, <laughs> which is like trying to walk across I-94 on a busy afternoon, wearing a blindfold in an ice storm, with banana peels strapped to the bottoms of your feet. <laughs> Do you have any idea how many British thermal units of energy are contained in a single canister of commercial-grade oxyacetylene, enough to shoot a moderately-sized adult male about halfway to Bismarck, North Dakota? No wonder our parents were afraid of this man. I remember a warm July night, one of those hot but dry nights when our bodies were so full of energy when we ran, it felt like our feet were not even touching the ground. We were playing sardines with all the kids in the neighborhood. Danny and Paul Sorheim and Matt and Pete Stalock and Melody Olson and Seth Puffer and Karen Kuzman. And last but not least, Danny and Paul's sister, Lori Sorheim, who was two years older than I and who I had a tremendous crush on. Lori was maturing, turning from girl to woman. And I noticed. I remember Danny and Paul and Lori and I huddled together, hiding from the others in the darkness. We were squeezed into a corner between Lori's abandoned playhouse and the Sorheim garage, where Dick Sorheim kept the Ford Thunderbird that we all hoped would be Lori's when she grew up and got married. We loved the closeness of each other's bodies. We were starved for affection. We were skin gangsters, and Lori's skin felt the best. 
and then it began, right before our eyes. Mr. Varner fired up the acetylene tank and started welding. Right there in his driveway across the alley. We knew we were not supposed to watch. Our eyeballs would melt. But there it was, this beautiful light and smell and sound. The more we tried to turn away, the more we were attracted to the light. So we'd glance at the welding out of the corners of our eyes, and then we'd look into each other's eyeballs and check for damage. <laughs> we'd swivel our heads sharply from one side to the other, so our eyes would only see this blur of light. And then another eyeball inspection, looking for any sign of meltage. We got older, three Mississippis of direct staring, and no, our eyeballs were not melting, not even tearing up. Finally, in a moment of corporate awe, we simply watched Mr. Varner weld this perfect clean seam between an old pickup truck and a new bumper. It was a glorious sight. A matrimony of metal showered in incandescent rites. Each brilliant spark a shooting star on a moonless night. And that smell, the smell of metal seared at 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit, the smell of death and life, the smell of machined creation. We tried to avert our eyes. We were afraid our eyeballs would melt, but we had to look. It was just too beautiful to turn away. God is big. God is awesome, majestic. If you look directly at God, your eyeballs will melt. Once upon a time, Moses went up to the mountain for a little meeting with God. God has rules for the people. You've heard of them, the Ten Commandments, the rules that God gave them. When Moses came down, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He got the holy sunburn because he was so close to God. In fact, without the cloud that hid God's face, Moses would have been burned to a crisp. The same thing happens to Jesus in our text for today, this day where we celebrate the transfiguration. Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray, and suddenly his face is lit up. He gets the holy sunburn too. Not only that, but his garments become dazzling white. This is the mighty, big God. Huge, powerful, strong, the God of the ocean, the God of the storm. This God is big, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omni-everything. If you look at this God, your eyeballs will melt. I feel a song coming on. That praise song, majesty. Majesty, worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be our glory, power, and thanks. Majesty, kingdom, authority, flow from his throne unto his own. I don't know the rest of the words. Majesty. But you know, I've learned through time, through reading authors like Catherine de Cunha, who I read at the beginning, I've learned that you don't have to opt for this powerful God business. It's got no soul, no guts. It doesn't pull you in. You feel no attraction to it, no desire to stare at it in the darkness on a warm night, huddled together with your friends. Power? Majesty? Is that it? Is that how we define God? Is faith merely submitting to a being who is capable of beating the tar out of you? Why should I worship majesty? What if 
God's glory is not power, but relationship. All this stuff, Moses and the Holy Sunburn and Jesus and the Transfiguration, I don't believe it's about power. I think it's about relationship, about the God who makes a way with you and for you, the God who reaches out to the other, the God whose nature it is to love the other. Here's the bad reading of the Moses stuff. This omnipotent, holy God who is so far above the people gives these laws to Moses so the people can get just a little closer to God, a little further up the mountain, a little more holy, so that one day they might not be burned to a crisp in the presence of this Almighty. Here's a better reading. Yahweh saves. Yahweh hears the cries of these slaves in Egypt, and Yahweh delivers them. Yahweh's hesed, God's steadfast love, makes a way for the people in an impossible situation because God is the lover, the compassionate one, the one who is always reaching out into the void, trying to heal and forgive the other. God hears the cries of these slaves who suffers, who suffer, and, and he lures them into deliverance, into freedom, into an exodus. Even the laws that God gives them are meant to help them, to teach them how to live a better life. Moses catches a glimpse of this God of steadfast love, and he ends up with the holy sunburn. Jesus gets the holy sunburn too. He gets transfigured. I think a bad reading of the transfiguration is to simply see it as Jesus' contact with God's raw power. I think a good way to read it is to see how it works in the story of Jesus. Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah about his departure which is he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The Greek word for departure is exodus. Think Bob Marley's exodus. The exodus of an oppressed people to a promised land. Jesus' departure, his exodus, is a reference to the cross. This second exodus, which is an extension of the first one, will not be about moving the people out of a bad situation. In this second exodus, the people will not go somewhere else. God will come here. God comes as this humble, homeless Palestinian Jew who washes the disciples' feet and forgives people and proclaims good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and who will go to the cross to get, try, to, try to get people to understand this relationship of circulating love. Now, it's true that God is God. God is wholly other. God is not just a great big one of us. Yet in Christ, the incarnation, we see that God does not will to be God apart from us. God gives away the glory. God enters creation and throws away the key. Remember that one, Russell? One of my favorites of yours. And as our dear Saint Debbie Blue puts it, glory doesn't shine. It bleeds. There's a power-based reading, a bad reading of Jesus' death. Some of you may know it. It goes something like this. The Almighty, so far above us, all-powerful God is pissed off at us. This God is angry. So angry. And Jesus is the brother of ours that gets us off the hook with our angry father, who's mad at us and wants to condemn us. A better reading of this, God
bodies there in the event of the cross, on the cross, with Jesus. God is loving the unlovable, forgiving the unforgiven, calling you into God's presence. The cross is God's reaching outness. This God has emptied God's self into the world, your real world of violence and greed and hatred. And this God fools you. While you're looking for God on the throne, in the palace, in the presidential motorcade, in the city, God is being busy being put to death on Skull Hill outside the city. You want to worship majesty and power, and all the time God is right here, bending down to wash your dirty, stinky feet. Jesus has to die. Do you have to die too? I think so. Not that you have to be Jesus Jr. and provoke some kind of martyrdom. You have to die to yourself. Your control, your calculus of good and bad, your arrogance, your fear, your greed, your isolation, your independence. That's all that crazy Apostle Paul was talking about, being crucified with Christ and rising again with him as a new creation. Your eyeballs will melt. Like Mr. Varner's garage, God's glory is dangerous. It can kill you, not from raw power, but from mercy, from the heat of God's steadfast love. In the Eastern Church, they have this fancy word, parachoresis. Parachoresis is a word for the circulating love that exists between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Creation, stuff, us, everything that is, is the result of a spilling over of this perfect relationship of love that flows among the three persons of the Trinity. Is that the glory of God? Is that what Moses looks at? and it gives him the holy sunburn? How could you not want to stare at that kind of glory? He is dying and being born again, simply the process of being taken into this relationship of love, this communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. Through Moses and Jesus, who are burned by the light, may God grant you a glimpse of glory that you might first see it out of the corner of your eye and then glimpse it as a streak of bright light. And finally, that you might someday look full on into the glory of God's steadfast love, that you might die with Christ and be born again. Amen.